And I'm going to read it. I think it's the ESV that I'm reading from. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Remember, they've just come through the Red Sea. Big moment. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. That's our word for the night, grumbled. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now we're going to talk about what it means that the Lord is testing them. It's not what you think it means. On the sixth day, when they, pre- uh, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In other words, God is saying to them, Listen, I know you're hungry. Listen, I've got you. I'm going to take care of you. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was in the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? That's literally what manna means. It means in the Hebrew, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now this is, a, this is kind of weird. On the sixth day, the Sabbath day, remember the Lord starting to instill a day of rest for his people? So on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. You can tell that Israel, like, can you relate, like, so stubborn, so hard-hearted, it's you, it's me. Right? 
And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, in the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Which doesn't sound great, but indeed that's what it was. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer, by the way, is the tenth part of an ephah. Let's pray together and we're going to dive. What in the world does this mean? Let's pray and we'll talk about it. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess. Um, some of us confess that um, it's hard for us to get into it. Lord, in some ways, it's like Charles Spurgeon said. It's like a loaf of bread and we look at it. But unless we break it open and begin to eat, it's not going to nourish us in the ways that it needs to. And Lord, we pray tonight, I pray tonight, that you would take your word and that you would break it open to us that we may feast. That we might feast on who you are for us, a God of love and deep compassion, who knows us better than we know ourselves and knows what we need. And I pray that we would feast on the gospel, uh, the free gift of your grace through Christ, that we might come and feast on that tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I've never been the guy who loves uh, to challenge himself. Um, In fact, I think it would be pretty fair to say that I have a severe allergy, and it's to pushing myself. Um, and that's why when I tried to try CrossFit for a season, and it was instead of like a match made in heaven, it was like a match made in hell because it was just not a good fit for me. I'm not the guy that loves to challenge himself. And yet lately I've been kind of convicted that, that I need to do that a little bit more in my life. And in particular, I feel like I, I've, and you've probably noticed if you follow me at all or we're friends on Facebook or a little bit on Twitter, that I've been trying to give some things up lately. Um, and it's not random. Um, so first, uh, and it's not really in the name of Lent, although I'm not against Lent, and I'm not against the church calendar. I think in some ways, we as, for those of you who grew up in the Presbyterian Church, we don't do a very good job of helping people kind of know, like, how does Christianity actually shape your life? That's not our strong point, right? And sometimes the church calendar can do that. But I didn't give it up in the name of Lent. I, I gave some of these things up uh, in the name of, I saw them as things that blocked my fellowship and dependence on God. So for me, I don't know what it is for you, but for me, I tried for 28 days to give up Twitter, and, and the next thing I think is going to be harder than that, which is to give up fried food, because if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I love donuts, which is a fried food, which apparently you can bake donuts, but it just doesn't sound as delicious. Um, but I've done some research. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. Um, and fries. I mean, French, how am I going to not do French fries and Chick-fil-A and all that? Well, we'll see. Um, but what's the point? Why, why am I trying uh, to do that? And I'm by no means any kind of example. But it's more about laying down some of those things and trying to lay down some of those things. Not forever. Not bad things. Good things. But good things that for me have become God things. And it's interesting that we come tonight to think about uh, this passage. Because in some ways that's exactly what God is doing with his people. He's saying to his people, listen, I'm taking you into the wilderness... Because I want you to learn that you're never going to learn that I am all you need until I am all you have. You're never, ever, ever going to learn that God is all you need 
until God is all you have. And that's what he's doing with his people here. And that's why this passage in some ways is so interesting. What I want to do is sort of kind of walk through this a little bit together. That here's what he's doing. Is he's, and the first thing you've got to see is that we're talking about God providing basic necessities. We're talking about bread. See, the thing is, I can live without Twitter. I can live without donuts, as hard as that might be. But I can't live without bread. And you can't live without bread either. Um, and, and so the Lord, in some ways in this passage, we begin to walk through it. He's, he's saying, listen, I've got you. I'm going, like, I care about you, body and soul. I'm going to take care of you. But if you've only ever read this story as simply that, that the people of God got hungry and they got grumpy and then God fed them, like, you're missing the point and the deeper point of the story. Like, that's sort of the Sunday school version when we were six. But what I want to do tonight is sort of look at what I think more deeply is going on in this story um, and kind of look at it. And I think God is showing us something deeper than that. So there are a couple of things I want us to see. And here's the first thing is I want you to remember where they are. They're in the wilderness. And it's interesting because wilderness is actually a theme in scripture that's pretty important. So not only is it really important that God is leading them in the wilderness for 40 years. And if you remember Jesus, when he comes in the scene, Jesus actually, remember the spirit of God leads him into the wilderness for 40 days. It's not by accident. But what in the world is the wilderness? What is, what's, what is important about it for you to understand from Scripture? Here's what you've got to see. Is that the wilderness is actually the place where all of the comforts you normally depend on and look to in your everyday life are being stripped away. So everything that these people found so comfortable and great about Egypt, the Lord is leading them into the wilderness to strip them away and the wilderness, if you think about it, it's actually, it works in that way. So if you saw Life of Pi, you know that in some ways what is interesting about that story is here's this guy, and literally it's him, a tiger, the sea, and the sun, and here he is, and there's nothing for him to depend on. It's him and nature. Or uh, think about it this way. Think about wilderness in terms of camping. Um, some of you love camping. I don't understand you because I hate camping. Um, I like to camp in my den and watch Netflix for hours. Um, but part of why some of you love camping is because you love that idea of being out in the wilderness with no distractions. It's you and the mountains, or it's you and the trees, it's you and the beach, it's you and nature, it's the sky, it's the animals, and it's God. It's you, and in some ways, God in the raw as you are in nature. But the other thing you have to understand is, so God has led them here, but that's the thing is that God has led them here. Did you catch that? God is the one. Same with Jesus. If you read that passage, it says the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. God led his people into the wilderness. Why? Because he's mean? Because he's the cruel mother-in-law who just likes to spite his people? No, he led them there, the passage says, to test them. Now, if you're like me, whenever I've read that, I always hate that idea because I've never understood it, I think, until I actually studied this. I've always hated the idea of God testing us because I've always thought about it like this. I've always thought about it like God saying, okay, Sammy, prove yourself to me. But then I started thinking about my kids. I went to the uh, Safra Ford, their school today, and I was thinking about them and their teachers. And I started thinking, why do my my kids' teachers test them? Is it so that they can prove themselves or is it so that they can know what they know? themselves. And this is the thing you have to understand is the Lord, the Lord is, is, is testing his people, not in the sense of saying, let prove yourself to me, but what he's doing is saying, I want you to know everything that's in you. 
I want you to know what you know. I want you to know what you know about me and what you think about me. I want you to know, another way of saying it is, I want you to know what is in your heart. That when the Lord is testing you, what he's meaning to do is to reveal to you, because he knows, right? Like the Lord doesn't look at you and, and not know what's on your heart. He knows everything about you, but sometimes you don't know. And I don't know because I'm blind. I have this incredibly inflated view of myself. And I don't sometimes see everything that's in my heart. And so the Lord is bringing them into the wilderness, not simply to strip them of the comforts of Egypt, but he's bringing them into the wilderness to test them by showing them everything that's in their hearts. Um, I love John Newton. Sometimes we sing, I ask the Lord. It's one of my very favorite hymns. And that's, that hymn is actually about what we're saying. Is John Newton prays. Remember the guy prays in the psalm, Lord, I want more of you. I want joy. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to give you joy, but here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it by stripping those things that you cling cling to that are not me. I'm going to do it through trials. I'm going to do it through difficulties. I'm going to do it through challenging and tearing out the idols that God substitutes in your life. Um, I love the way Newton said it. He nailed it when he said this. Why does God do that? Here's why. Because no one, Newton said, no one can be told that they're a sinner. They have to be shown. You cannot be... I could sit here all day and say... You're a, here's what's sweet about the gospel. You're a sinner. You're a great sinner. But Jesus is a great savior. Trust in him. Jesus is, he went to the cross to take away all your sins. Yes, we would clap. We probably don't clap. We maybe should clap more here. I don't know. We can talk about that later. Whatever your response is, the thing that's going to be missing is you can say that I'm a sinner, but part of what the Lord has to do in your life and in my life is to show you that. Is to show you, like we sing, and I ask the Lord, showed me the evil desires of my heart. Uh, it's interesting, you know, I've done college ministry for seven years. You know, because that's what college is, by the way. BT dubs. College is the time where you are shown, it's, it's a wilderness of sorts where you are shown everything that's in your heart. So every year, uh, every year, without fail, every summer it's come in already. I get emails from parents whose kids are coming to South Carolina. Uh, I got emails from some of your parents. And we won't say who, because that would be embarrassing. But they go something like this. They go, hey, will you please plug my son or daughter into RUF? Because I, and here's the implicit thing. Because I am, Here's what they don't say, but I can read through the lines. Because I am gripped by fear that once they get into this secular university, they're going you know, to become alcoholics. They're going to get pregnant. They're going to throw their entire lives away. Right? That's like the, they're gripped by fear by that. And like, and like, I'm going to be Moses where I'm like, all right, let's, you know, first of all, I, you know, I've never sent an email or a Facebook message to one of you and you like, you're like, yeah, I would definitely come to RUF now. I got a message from a 32 year old guy with four kids and a mustache. And yeah, that ministry looks awesome. Never. Literally in Georgia Southern, I had one guy, a Facebook message him and he actually ended up coming around to our ministry two years later. And he was like, dude, when I got that message, I was like, who is this creep? And I was like, yep. So I don't do that anymore. So I have interns, right? Um, but here's, here's when I get those panicked, desperate emails. Here's what I want to say to parents, and here's what I want to say to you. Is college doesn't change your heart. College reveals your heart. College doesn't bring new things. It brings new temptations in some ways. But all college does for you is it reveals what's already there. Here's what's scary is a lot of you were the youth group kid. And you were the youth group kid because you loved popularity. And because in high school, being the youth group kid was still kind of cool. And you got to South Carolina and you realized like that, that being the, the, the college ministry kid is not cool. It's just not. 
And so you very quickly, it's been hard for you to get involved because you're, because what was in your heart, you wanted popularity. You didn't want Jesus. You wanted approval. You wanted people to like you. You didn't care that Jesus, you have all of his, you didn't care about, you wanted some, you wanted it from somewhere else. So you became the party kid. You became the five points kid. That's a lot of your stories. Um, college didn't change that about you. It revealed that about you. It didn't change your heart. It revealed what was already there. And that's what the wilderness does. It begs the question, what do you really trust in? What do you really depend on? What do you really look to at the end of the day? That's what the wilderness does. So let's keep walking around the story. So what did it do for them? What did it reveal about our ancestors, the Israelites? What did it say about them? So one thing that's very clear, amongst other things, it said this, that they were the furthest... The, let me try that again in English. They were the furthest thing from content. They were, their hearts were full of discontent. And the word that our pastor uses, used it about 20 times was grumbling. What does it mean to grumble? That's what their hearts were full of. Their hearts were full of discontent, so they grumbled. You will never, you, when your heart is content in the gospel and who God is for you, you praise. When your heart is disappointed... Or think something is better than God, you grumble. You grumble about what he's brought into your life. You grumble about what he's doing. And that's what they're doing. They're grumbling. Here's literally in the dictionary what it means to grumble. It means, I love this definition, it means to complain or protest about something in a bad-tempered but typically muted way. It's quiet. Right? Here's another way of thinking about it. What is grumbling? Another way of thinking about it is like this. Grumbling is the love child. The grumpy love child. Of worry and bitterness. Listen, I, I can't do better than Keller. Listen, to the way Ke- the way, I love the way Keller defines both of those things. Let's keep thinking about grumbling. Here's what he says about worry and bitterness. He says, this is profound. If you're writing down, you should write this down. Worry is not believing, worry is not believing that God will get it right. And bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Worry is not believing that God will get it right. That's what you're doing when you're worrying. And bitterness is, God got it wrong. And here's what I want you to see is grumbling is both of those at the same time. On the one hand, you're worried that he's not... They're in the, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. What is God doing? On the one hand, they're worried he's not going to get it right. On the other hand, they're bitter because they're afraid that he got it wrong. They should have never... This is what they're saying in their hearts. You should have never taken us from Egypt. If you were going to lead us here... To, to just kill us in the wilderness? Why didn't you just kill us in Egypt along with the Egyptians? That would have been way better because at least we would have had like barbecue and McDonald's, and, which I can relate to. At least we would have had all the comforts of Egypt. And yet you brought us out here, you stripped all those comforts, and you're just going to kill us. They're, wor- they're full of the love child of worry and bitterness. And essentially, if you look at verses 2 and 3, that's what they're saying. They're saying, look, life was better. And this is the lie in your heart, and this is the lie in my heart, that we still are prone to believe ever since the first wilderness, which was what? After Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the garden. That was the first wilderness. And from the very first wilderness, in your heart and in my heart, we're saying this. Life would be better if you just left me alone, God. If you just left me alone and let me do my own thing and have my own way, life would be so much better. That's why the Bible says we're like sheep. Who each go to our own way and we're led astray by our own lusts. Because we, we secretly still believe that life is better when God just leaves us alone. 
And so God leads them into the wilderness. That's the sad part. To show them that he's enough. And instead of loving him for it and saying, you're enough, we love you, they resent him for it. They resent what he's doing in their lives. Uh, in his book, Leading Egypt, uh, Finding God in the Wilderness Places, Chuck DeGroat, he talks about this in a way that nails it. Here, he's talking about our daily comforts, the things that we've talked about. Uh, he talks about things from like Twitter and donuts to like coffee, sex, relationships, just the things that we're prone to daily look to and find comfort in. And here's what he says about the way that we become addicted to these things and why it's actually subtly bad for us. Listen to what he says. He said, you may be thinking, he's talking about these things as addictions, and he himself is talking about how coffee is like an addiction for him. He says, you may be thinking, I've gone over the edge here, finding addictions everywhere, but follow the trajectory of these simple daily attachments, and you'll find a need for security, for safety, for intimacy, for connection, for regularity, for productivity. Go a bit deeper, and you'll find that each of these things can even replace God. Providing for my needs without consideration of my deep and desperate neediness as a human being. Each can be a way of coping, a reality-denying form of self-preservation that robs me of grace. You see what he's saying? He's saying the subtle, the subtle danger of the comforts of Egypt, the subtle danger of those things that become habits and addictions in our own lives that we look to to cope when we've had a sad day, when we've had a bad day. The subtle danger is those things can rob us of God. That's the subtle danger. But the grace of the wilderness is that God strips those things so that he'll show you that when God is all you have, you'll see that God is all you need. And that brings me lastly to the idea of manna, to the idea of bread. So we've already said that part of the story is God taking care physically of the basic needs of his people. Uh, but there's so much more, especially with this idea of manna and of bread. Um, and there are kind of two things I want you to see about the way he does the manna that I think are profound and helpful for us. Here's the first thing. Did you notice that it's daily? Uh, just, I mean, you saw that there are six days where they're called to be gathering. Now, it's interesting because, like, the way we do groceries is very different. So, in my house, my wife typically goes to the grocery store once, maybe twice a week, tops. And we gather our food. And then, but God says, no, no, daily I want you to gather. He doesn't say gather it at the first of the week and then it'll last you and then you come back. Why? It says, we ask, why does God teach? Why does Jesus, when he said, when the disciples say, teach us to pray, why, did, why does he say, pray, give us our daily bread? Why is it daily? Here's why. It's because the Lord wants them to learn to depend on him. And what's interesting is, when, we hear, when I hear that and when you hear that, here's what you think. Here's what goes on. When you think about praying for daily bread, here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, I need to pray to God to give me what I think I need. And that's not what God is doing. God is saying, I'm going to give you this to gather daily because I want you to see that I am, I am all you need. I am all you need. Another, another way of saying it is, he is the bread. That's the point. He's trying to say that I am the one you can depend on. What is bread? Ever thought about what, what, at the base, most basic thing, what is bread? Not literally, but what is bread? Bread is something that you depend on, that nourishes you and refreshes you. That's what bread is. Something you look to, you depend on, you have to have for nourishment and refreshment. And God is saying to his people, that is me. That's why Jesus, when he came, right? This is the most, one of, in the, one of his I am statements. When he's, it's actually, he's with uh, the people of Israel. He's, it's right there in the city. It's the feast of the unleavened bread. And Jesus, he looks at the crowd and he sees these people making bread of all kinds of other things other than God. And he says to them, listen, I am the bread of life. 
You're trying to find bread in so many other places, but I am the bread. I am the one you need. I am the one who loves you in the words of Wilco. And this is what... Listen, it is possible to make all kind, bread of all kinds of things. It is possible to make bread of all kinds of things other than God. Let me just give you a few from my own life. What have I made bread of? What have I thought I have to have this to be happy? What have I thought if I don't have this, I can't live? Here's what it is for me. Girls. I've made girls my bread. Being the good kid. Like, I was the kid who counted on one hand how many times I'd even thought a cuss word. Like, I was that kid. I was the kid you hated. That you didn't want to invite to your party because you might watch a rated R movie and I would be like, cuddled in the corner. Being the good kid was my bread. That's what I lived on. That reputation. That's why I was the youth group kid. Bread's been my bread. Porn has been my bread. All kinds of things can be your bread. But Jesus is saying, I am the only bread who satisfies. All this other bread, whatever you've made your bread, it's like the day old bread at Beezer's. It's cheap, it's easy to get, looks good from the outside, but when you taste it, ugh. Sorry, sorry if you like that bread, but you haven't had good bread. It's stale and it fails to satisfy. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the bread of life. I'm the only one who can satisfy you. So it's daily because they needed to learn this lesson the hard way. And what's interesting is, you know, our tendency is we want to treat, we want to treat God less as bread and more as the baker. This is why we pray like we pray. So if I were to like just come, like you were saying your prayers at night, and I was just like, however you do it, and I was like, just peek my ear in. Probably what I would hear a lot of prayers like, Lord, please let me get back together with him or her. Please. Lord, please let me get that internship. Lord, please do this. Lord, please give me this. Lord, please. And he's the baker. And instead the Lord is saying, you've missed the point of daily bread. What you need to pray is, Lord, do whatever it takes that I would know more of you. And that I would have more of you. Do whatever it takes. Good things, hard things. Do whatever it takes that my all in all would be found in you. Uh, think about it like this. This is another way of thinking about it. Imagine that you're driving somewhere. And you're get, you get super lost. You're in the middle of nowhere. You have no cell phone reception. You're super lost. So you have to pull over, which is so painful for a lot of us. You pull over and you ask for directions. And the guy says, listen... You are so hopelessly lost. You have no idea where you're going, so I just need to drive you there. And that's what, the Lord, that's what daily bread is. Is that what you and I need is a moment-to-moment, moment-to-moment relationship with the one who knows us and with the one who loves us and with the one, only one who can take care of us. And that's what he's saying. That's the point. I'm, I'm the one from, that I want a moment-to-moment relationship that you're looking to me to be your bread. But there's another thing. So not only is it daily, but the other interesting thing is this whole idea of they gathered twice as much on the sixth day before the Sabbath. We're not going to get into the Sabbath other than to know that the whole point of the Sabbath was not so the Lord, again, could be picky, but the Lord was trying to do something nice for his people. The Lord was trying to give them rest. And what he was trying to say is, listen, you are not like the other people who work and strive so hard 
you have to understand that I do your work for you. It's like Trek said last week, I fight, I fight your battles for you so you can rest. And here's what he's saying here is all the other nations work for their bread. Yours is free. Because I've done everything to give it to you. This is what you have to understand about Jesus, by the way. If you don't understand, this is one of the most freeing things you can know about Jesus. The Lord is trying to teach his people is simply this. That he's trying to teach them that, that Jesus has done everything for them entirely And Jesus freely gives. He freely gives his grace. That's why he says, in Isaiah, one of my favorite passages when he says in Isaiah 55, listen to what he says, this is the ultimate invitation. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money? For that which is not bread. And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. That's what grace means. That it cost Jesus everything. He literally said at the Last Supper. This is my body broken for you upon the cross. It costs him his life. But it's free to you. All you have to do, you don't have to work for it. He worked for it. He provided. You see the image? This is like the, imagine the best wedding reception you've ever, this is why I love weddings. Is the ceremony's cute. It's great. I've done a couple, but I love the food. Let's be honest. The food and the drink is the best part and the party. And he's saying this is the most, imagine the best spread, the best spread you've ever seen. Just picture it in your mind. He says, not only is it a thousand times better than that, a million times better than that. But all there is to do is to come and enjoy it and rest in it. And that's the gospel. This is why I love the old hymn, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. It is finished. It is finished. What more is there to do? And the what more there is to do is to come and enjoy, and rest, and feast on it. That idea of rest is hard for us, though. The idea of the daily dependence is hard for us, because we don't like, we like, we're self-sufficient. The idea of rest is hard for us, because we don't get it. It's not anything we've ever experienced. That's why I love the way Paul Marshall in his book, listen to the way he says it in his book, Heaven is Not My Home, Learning to Live in God's Creation. He says this, this is profound, he says, When we rest... We acknowledge that all our striving will of itself do nothing. Rest means letting the world pass us by for a time. Genuine rest requires acknowledging that God and our brothers and sisters can survive without us. It requires recognizing our own insufficiency and handling over responsibility. It is truly surrendering to the ways of God. It is a moment of celebration when we acknowledge that blessing comes only from the hand of God. This is why rest requires faith. It is also why salvation can be pictured as rest. That's why God says in Isaiah, in in repentance and rest is your salvation. When we rest, we accept God's grace. We do not seek to earn. We receive. We do not justify. We are justified. Close with this. It's basketball season, and um, I love watching the tournament. One of my favorite players of all time is Pete Maravich, Pistol Pete. Um, Read his book. I just, I love the, the film's a little cheesy, but there are a couple of fantastic biographies, and um, it's a fascinating story. He played basketball for LSU back in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, and then he went on to play for the Hawks, the Jazz, and I think the Celtics for a little while. 
And I, he was just incredible. Like, he's so, he literally is like, if you imagine a kid that was like an amazing basketball star at Hogwarts, like, that is Pete Maravich. Like, he was just like a magician on the court. That sounds cheesy. Just go watch some YouTube videos, and you will be amazed. His prolific score average, I think, in, in, in college, like 40-some points a game, which is unheard of. And he can pass. I love players that can pass, and he can pass. Um, but what's fascinating is, in the, in the biography, there's a line that's talking about him. And it talks about him from a very, very early age that he had made basketball his savior. And it simply said this in the book. He said he had found a savior, and it wasn't Jesus Christ. And this story is interesting, though. So he goes on, literally, basketball is his bread. Like he says, if you listen to any, uh, any testimonies he gives, he, he says, basketball was it for me. Basketball was the way I was going to make a living. And he did. In 1970, he signed literally the biggest, the biggest contract in sports history. Like, not just in basketball, but in sports history, he signed a contract for a million dollars with the Hawks. Not, never been done before. He went on, he was, you know, NBA Hall of Famer, great career. And then he talks about, he talks about though, that he was still so unsatisfied. He had everything. He had rings. He had everything he could ever wanted. He had money. He had Porsches. He had everything. And yet he says, I was just so unhappy. And he said, one night, I was thinking about all my unhappiness, and then I started thinking about my sin. And I started thinking about what I'd heard about the gospel. And it was like the Lord spoke to me and said, come and find forgiveness and rest in me. And he did. And what's fascinating is literally he gave his testimony. It's pretty cool. He gave it in 1987 at a Billy Graham crusade, literally a couple miles from here at Williams Bryce. You can go and find it on YouTube. And one of the things he says, though, at the very end, he says this. He talks about all the things that basketball had given him and had done for him, which is a lot. And he says this. He says, I'm being inducted into the Hall of Fame next week, but I wouldn't trade my position in Christ for a thousand NBA championships or a thousand Hall of Fame rings or for a billion dollars. Why? Because there's nothing like the joy of Jesus Christ in your life. So here's the question. It's pretty simple. Is Jesus your bread? Or is something else? What's your bread? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would uh, take that question and let us wrestle. And Lord, I pray for some of us that you would let us for the first time taste and see that you are good. That with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared and that you might be loved. And Lord, I pray that that would happen for some of us, even tonight, that we would come to know you in a way that we never have before. Lord, we pray these things for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.